Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want Salon Perfect Nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at olivenjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at olivenjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 125, A Tsar is Born. Last time, we followed the confusing game of musical chairs that decided who would become the new guardian for Constantine VII. In the end, the major players from the court of Leo VI were all swept away and an unknown Armenian sailor took charge of the government. So who is Romanus Lecapinos, and where did he come from? Lecapinos derives from Lecap, a town near Melitene in western Armenia. It's possible that this place was technically part of the caliphate when Romanus was born. My vagueness comes from the fact that we don't know when that was. Romanus's father was an Armenian peasant named Theophylact. Like many men from the mountains, Theophylact became a soldier and was recruited during the 860s to serve with the Byzantines. The major push at the time was to crush the Paulicians, whose stronghold at Tefriki was a little way north of Melitene. Theophylact earned himself a nickname during these wars, the Unbearable, which one hopes is a reference to his ferocity and not his conversation skills. In 870, the Emperor Basil led a force on an attempt to capture the Paulician capital, but the rebels surprised the Romans and drove them off. As the Vasilevs made his escape, he was alarmed to find enemy troops bearing down on him. Fortunately, he was saved by the unbearable. Suitably grateful, Basil promoted Theophylact to be part of the imperial bodyguard. So the story goes. Interestingly, Leo III's rise to prominence contained a similar tale. You may remember that he saw Justinian II marching on the capital and presented him with his flock of sheep. He too was promoted into the imperial bodyguard, and up the ladder he went. In both cases, perhaps the personal contact with the emperor has been exaggerated in the telling. But most likely, Theophylact, the unbearable, did indeed serve with distinction, and Basil's entourage promoted him 
knowing that he would owe his career to the emperor alone. Arriving in the capital with his father was baby Romanus. Despite the educational possibilities on offer, Theophylact did not indulge his son. He'd made his fortune without much schooling, and the same would go for his progeny. Instead of joining the army, though, the boy signed up for the navy. His father's position gave him a leg up, and we're told that toward the end of Leo VI's reign, he became the Stratikos of Samos, a small naval theme that guarded the northern Aegean. It's on the map. Romanus would have been about 42 years old when the Emperor Alexander took the throne, and when the Vasilefs dismissed Zoe's relative Himerios, it was Lecabinos who was called to the capital to be promoted to the rank of Thrugarios, or Admiral of the Home Fleet. The rise of Basil the Stable Boy definitely has similarities to Romanus's story. Both men of Armenian descent, with no imperial pedigree, who used palace politics to manoeuvre their way to the top. The main difference between them is that Basil is famous for the two brutal murders which cleared his path, whereas Romanus managed to be hailed as emperor without any bloodshed. On the face of it, an extraordinary achievement. He may have lacked the education of a gentleman, but Romanus was clearly someone of great intelligence and subtlety. He would have been about 50 when he became emperor, but would still reign for 24 years. And in that time, he would keep the same domestic of the Scoli for 22 years and the same chief minister for 19. He commanded loyalty and governed well. There is, of course, an elephant in the room. Constantine VII, son of Leo, grandson of Basil, was the legitimate emperor, and he just passed 14 when one could technically be called a man. In any other regime in our podcast so far, Constantine would be dead. You do not leave men with a claim to the throne alive. They will always become rallying points for discontent. But, as we discussed last week, two factors worked against this orthodoxy. One was the popularity of the Macedonian dynasty. Leo had been a beloved monarch. He'd stayed in the city his whole life, and that type of continuity was special. Before him, Basil and Bardas had won great victories, which saw loot brought back to the capital. It had been nearly 80 years now since there was a serious defeat at the hands of the Arabs. Things were going okay. Why spoil that? Leo's efforts to produce a son would have been the celebrity story of the day. When finally he'd succeeded, young Constantine was seen as a blessing. A gift from God to preserve this new era of peace and prosperity. This popularity was too valuable to the regime. As we saw last week, the army backed down because the legitimate emperor was standing beside the Armenian admiral. 
If Constantine died, though, men would ask themselves, what right does Le Capinos have to rule over me? Still, in any other era of Roman history, it's hard to imagine even this saving someone. But the unique geography of Constantinople made this arrangement possible. The palace was big enough to keep him in comfortable house arrest, away from men who might try to seize him. And as the years passed, even this was deemed unnecessary. Constantine was allowed out because no one wanted him to leave the city, the government because he was their tool, and the people because he was their mascot, and possibly still future emperor. Romanus and Constantine were also a good fit, personality-wise. Constantine was quiet and obedient. He bore the insult of being deprived of his birthright with dignity. He devoted himself to scholarly and artistic pursuits, and Romanus, for his part, was a gentle father-in-law. Though he pursued the interests of his own family, he never tried to humiliate his younger colleague. This is plain from the two decades plus they would live side by side in the palace. After, say, ten years in power, Romanus could have had Constantine quietly poisoned. He'd been a sickly child, so even in his twenties a sudden illness might have been believed. But it never happened. An additional factor in this is Constantine's marriage to Helena, Romanus's ambitious and capable daughter. She advocated for Constantine's survival. We know they got on, but affection aside, the marriage allowed her to have influence she otherwise would never have had. She was an Augusta. Her children were in line for the throne. She could jockey for position with her brothers instead of being married off to a magnate, as her sisters were. For Romanos, too, this was an extra joy. Rarely do imperial fathers and daughters get to grow older together. Having just mentioned humiliation, there was one annual insult which Constantine was forced to endure. Part of why Romanus was keen to court the Patriarch Nicholas was that the bishop had stood against Constantine's legitimacy. This allowed Le Capinos to once again play the great healer of wounds while undercutting his one rival for power. Soon after becoming emperor, Romanus and Nicholas arranged a church council to repair relations with the Euthymian clergy. Once that had been patched up, the council firmed up the rules on third and fourth marriages. They agreed that fourth marriages were indeed immoral and illegal, but that the special dispensation granted to young Constantine would be honoured. Like a lot of church councils, these proclamations were to be celebrated every year at a special service, reinforcing what had been agreed. So, each time, Constantine would have to file into the Hagia Sophia to hear how, essentially, his father was a lech, his mother a concubine, and he was a special exception that was otherwise deeply frowned upon. Great. See you next year. What does all this mean for the Macedonian dynasty? 
Clearly, Romanus hoped that when Constantine died, his family would take over, and the Lecapinae dynasty would just slowly absorb the previous one, in a similar way to how the Macedonians took over from the Amorians. But it was not to be, and Constantine VII would survive and become senior emperor. Through him, the Macedonians clung to power and would emerge again to keep the dynasty alive. We will return to Constantine down the road. For now, though, we should turn to the rest of the Lecapinae brood. Romanus loved his wife dearly and was very sad when she died two years after entering the palace. But she had given him seven children, who he now began to carve out imperial roles for. His eldest son, Christopher, was crowned emperor in 921. He was older than Constantine VII, and over time it became clear that he would inherit the throne if his father died. Three years later, his second and third boys, Stephen and Constantine, were also crowned, and at the same time his youngest, Theophylact, was made Sincellus, or secretary to the patriarch. Now, Theophylact was seven years old, so he wasn't doing much filing at this point. But following the example of the Emperor Basil, Romanus decided that young Theophylact would one day become patriarch, and this would set him on that path. He also had two younger daughters who, as I mentioned, would grow up to marry the sons of wealthy magnates. Romanus himself would never remarry, but he did have another child while in power. This illegitimate boy was named Basil and castrated as a baby. This seemed a sensible way to protect the family from future conflict. As ever, this seemingly cruel act opened up a specific career path at court, and we will be hearing plenty more from Basil. Romanus did not have time to attend to his family's advancement at leisure, though. He inherited a conflict with Bulgaria that was even more complicated than I was able to address last episode. We need to return to the first negotiation between Simeon and the patriarch Nicholas Mysticus. As you know, Leo VI had suffered at Simeon's hand, and had agreed to a generous annual payment to secure peace. This had held for 15 years before Alexander broke it. Simeon marched to Constantinople, and by the time he got there, no Roman force opposed him. Before we go into the tent, I should just note that the tribute payment was in itself important to Simeon. The Bulgarians did not have a currency of their own, Their people paid tax in kind, and so the yearly influx of Roman gold was very valuable to the regime. It allowed Simeon to reward his nobles and bureaucracy for their loyalty. It was also a guarantee of respect for Bulgaria's right to exist. As we discussed at the end of the century, this remained the key to the relationship between the two sides. Roman self-image was still constructed on the basis that we are civilization 
and everyone else is a barbarian. The military might of the Arabs made it impossible not to concede them a grudging measure of this civility, but not the Bulgarians. Despite their conversion, the Byzantines still largely viewed them as unwashed rustics who should not be dealt with as equals. Not to mention that they are squatting on territory that should be ours. Simeon, having grown up in Constantinople, understood this viewpoint all too well. That's what made him such a successful ruler. He knew his enemy intimately and fully comprehended the vulnerable situation his people remained in, no matter how many battles they won. Everything they'd done across the past century was geared toward recognition from Constantinople. The conversion to Christianity was key to this. They wanted to be treated as lawful neighbors, not savages. The annual payment of gold was a symbol of Byzantine fear and friendship. The Romans would need that money to campaign against them, so as long as they kept handing it over, Bulgaria would survive another year. So when Alexander refused to pay, Simeon had no choice but to go to war. He couldn't afford for the Romans to spend even one summer plotting against him. As he arrived in front of the land walls in 913, he sensed that he had a unique opportunity to push for greater concessions. With a boy on the throne and the archbishop in charge of negotiations, Simeon dreamt big. As you know, he wanted the tribute restored. No problem. He wanted an imperial marriage. A-OK. But what I didn't tell you is that he asked to be crowned emperor. Huh? This has caused a lot of confusion, but modern historians are confident that Simeon asked Nicholas to crown him then and there as emperor of the Bulgarians. The precedent had been set a century earlier with Charlemagne. If there could be an emperor of the Franks, then why not of the Bulgarians? Simeon knew that the Franks were treated as an exception by the Romans, a semi-friendly Christian kingdom worthy of fear and respect. Now he wanted that for himself and could be crowned personally by the patriarch. The reason this has caused confusion is that we have a collection of Nicholas Mysticus's letters. It's a wonderful piece of actual Byzantine correspondence that gives us rare insight into the situation. But he doesn't mention this coronation. Through the chronicles, though, it seems clear that Simeon began styling himself as emperor after this meeting, and was angry to not have the title acknowledged by the next couple of regimes. According to historian Mark Witto, Nicholas's letter collection was carefully edited to match with the official propaganda of Romanus Lecapinus's regime. At the time, though, it seems clear that the story got out that Simeon had been crowned. One of the chronicles tries to explain this away with an implausible tale. Uh, in this telling, Dum-Dum the Barbarian Simeon was tricked by the wily civilized Nicholas. The patriarch crowned him emperor using improper ceremony and a fake crown. Ha-ha, you never really were an emperor. Simeon 
far better educated than Romanus himself, knew exactly what the real thing looked like. The story shows Roman bigotry in all its glory. So going back to 913, Simeon went home happy. Acknowledgement of the title emperor and an imperial marriage would certainly make the position of his people more secure. His daughter would work for him, persuading the young emperor to accept the Bulgarians as peaceful neighbours, and in an ideal world, Simeon might even get to meet young Constantine in person and persuade him of the wisdom of this policy. As father-in-law to an impressionable youth, he could have a lot of influence. Naturally, then, he was furious when both plans were scotched by Zoe just a year later. From his point of view, he had no choice but to begin raiding Roman territory, to force them back to the negotiating table. And in 917, exactly what his people feared would always happen, happened. The Romans set out to massacre them. Zoe wanted legitimacy for her regency, and destroying the Bulgarian army and imposing peace on them would do just that. From the Bulgarian point of view, this was imperial aggression that stank of utter hypocrisy. The Bulgarians had not broken the peace. The Romans had. The Bulgarians had converted to Christianity in order to live as respectable neighbours. Now the Romans were hiring pagan thugs, the Pechenegs, to murder them. Byzantine words about the Prince of Peace and Brotherhood were all meaningless. They still saw the Bulgarians as uncivilized interlopers. Even though the campaign which followed blew up in their faces, Simeon felt little joy as he stared up at the Theodosian walls a few months later. Those ancient fortifications made it impossible for him to secure peace. Zoe's government still refused to deal, and they were stirring up trouble in Serbia, which he now had to deal with. As we discussed at the end of the century, the tribes of the central West Balkans had begun to acknowledge a Serb prince as their overlord, in order to defend themselves from Bulgarian encroachment. To the north, a similar process saw a Croatian king now in place. The Bulgarians still ruled in a steppe manner, meaning they relied on fear to whip the dozens of Slavic tribes that populated the peninsula into shape. A rebellious Serbia was not a threat in itself, but it might lead to the Slavs of Macedonia refusing to show up for campaign. The Romans knew this and sent cash to the prince to convince him to resist. Simeon was able to restore things swiftly, but two years later the Byzantines found another candidate and sent him with some aid to try and steal the throne. During this time, Simeon continued to apply pressure. He raided Greece as far as Corinth, smashing the local theme armies and demanding to be hailed as emperor. He also sent some of his subordinates into the Peloponnese to stir up a revolt amongst the Slavs living there. He continued to correspond with Nicholas and was enraged to learn that Romanus Lecabinus had stolen the role of imperial stepfather that he'd coveted. Historians disagree about the dating of the next few years, 
but here is the rough order of events. Feeling that this was the only way to get the deal he wanted, Simeon sent word to the Arabs of Sicily, North Africa, and Tarsus. If they would bring a combined fleet to blockade Constantinople, then he would provide the land forces. Once the city had been taken, he would leave it in their control after they'd split the loot 50-50. Whether this plan would ever have come together is doubtful, but the Byzantines captured the envoys as their ship returned home. Once they'd discovered what was going on, Romanus sent word to the Fatimid ruler in North Africa. The emperor would gladly renew and extend an earlier tribute payment to stop the Arabs raiding Italy, and in exchange he'd appreciate it if they would forget the discussions they'd just had with the Bulgarians. The offer was accepted. Meanwhile, Simeon was further frustrated by another rebellion in Serbia. The independence of the tribes was disrupting his campaigns against Byzantium. It took two invasions to put them down, including a raid into Croatia, which suffered heavy casualties. Having lost precious time and prestige, Simeon decided to acknowledge Romanus as Roman Emperor and discuss peace. In either 923 or 924, he launched a massive scorched-earth raid through Thrace and Macedonia. His men savaged the land, including cutting down trees as they marched south. And once his force had taken up their regular campsite outside the Theodosian walls, he asked to negotiate. He assumed he'd done enough damage to get the kind of deal he was looking for. Simeon wanted to talk with Romanus face to face, but given that a century earlier Leo V had attempted to assassinate Crum in a situation just like this, both sides were on edge. Turning to engineering to find a solution, the Byzantines built a fortified jetty which went from the land outside the walls into the Golden Horn. Simeon's men inspected it thoroughly and were satisfied. He entered on foot, being hailed in Greek as Vathilefs by his men, point made. And at the other end, Romanus arrived by boat with Nicholas. What was said that day between the three men will remain a mystery. The Byzantines provide us with a full account of the dialogue, but Mark Witto calls it official wishful thinking. A peace treaty was laid out. It involved the Romans restoring the tribute and giving up several forts in Thrace which the Bulgarians had taken. Simeon recognized Romanus as the emperor, but what about his title? Again, controversy reigns, but I've been convinced that Romanus agreed to call Simeon emperor to secure the peace. The Bulgarians left once the terms were agreed, but the treaty was not formally ratified. Romanus continued to quibble about the number of forts that had been taken, and again raised objections about the wording of Simeon's title. As far as we can tell, Simeon wanted to be called Emperor of the Bulgarians and Romans. Not that he meant the Byzantine Romans. This was closer to being hailed as Western Emperor, he wanted Constantinople to acknowledge his right to rule over their former territory and former people. 
This was a stipulation Romanus could not live with. In time-honoured Byzantine fashion, it seems that Le Cabinos was playing for time. Simeon was now in his sixties, and steppe empires, no matter how sophisticated, usually struggle once a great leader is dead. Political chaos often accompanies the succession, and the army loses its former cohesion. Sure enough, in 927, Simeon did indeed die of heart failure. He was preparing more raids against the enemy, though a war which had now dragged on for 15 years was beginning to exhaust everyone. The Bulgarians would not give up, though. Simeon's young son Peter took over, and with his family's help, he managed to establish himself as the new emperor. He brought the Slavs into line and mounted another assault on Byzantine territory. Having proven himself, though, Peter was happy to talk peace. And by now, the Romans had already begun operations in the east again, so Romanus was receptive. The treaty, which this time was ratified, allowed everyone to save face. The Romans got their Thracian forts back. There was an exchange of prisoners, and Peter accepted subordination to his spiritual father in terms of rank. He would be addressed as Emperor of the Bulgarians only from now on. Adapting the Latin title Caesar in Slavonic, the new designation became Tsar. Simeon had also raised his archbishop up to Patriarch a few years earlier, presumably so that future emperors would not be dependent on Roman approval. The treaty confirmed this as official in Roman eyes, which was a big deal. It granted the Bulgarian church autocephalous status, freeing it from direct Byzantine control. It's been suggested that the Romans were happier about allowing this now that it was clear that the Bulgarians would not be under the care of the papacy. Along with this, in autumn 927, Peter came to a church outside the land walls and married Maria Le Capinos. She was the daughter of Christopher, Romanus's eldest son. A lesser match than Constantine VII himself, which made it more acceptable to the Byzantines, but still a major concession to the civility of the Bulgarians. And on the flip side, the Vasilevs was aware that marrying his granddaughter to a barbarian might be seen negatively by the masses, so he spun the occasion for all the positives he could get out of it. The celebrations were splendid, and Peter's imperial title was trumpeted. His granddaughter was not marrying below her station, she was rising to become an empress. He even persuaded the Bulgarians present to hail Christopher, their emperor's new father-in-law, as next in line to the Roman throne, a designation he had not yet officially taken from Constantine VII, but which Romanus was happy to grant. Smoothly done, as usual. The specially constructed jetty was decorated and used for a private dinner for the new couple, along with their respective imperial families. 
What followed was four decades of peace between the two sides, a testament to the political and military skill of Simeon and his father Boris before him. They had worked very hard so that Peter could wring these concessions from the Romans. Despite flirtations with the Franks, this was the first imperial bride to be sent abroad in the history of the empire. More than that, acknowledgement of the imperial title was a real coup, clearly something the Byzantines were uncomfortable about, given their editing of records to attempt to hide this capitulation. The Romans agreed to restore the tribute payments, but now described them as merely upkeep for the Empress Maria's royal apartments, rebranding at its finest. Peter and Maria would enjoy a happy marriage, and as long as they lived, the two sides remained at peace. Romanus was pleased, as you would expect. Although the Bulgarians never seriously threatened the land walls, they had done a huge amount of damage, and politically the wars in Europe were a constant stream of bad news as refugees and wounded soldiers staggered through the gates. The peace was a relief for everyone, and Romanus could claim the credit. It's strange to talk of peace when next week we begin a relentless series of eastern campaigns. However, for the Romans, those wars were of a different nature. For the first time in centuries, they would largely be fought on foreign soil. Next time, we will follow the emperor's new domestic as he pushes forward into Armenia. But back at home, plague, famine and frost cause serious hardship for the common people, and the emperor must act. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>